everyone, welcome back to the Earth on Survival Guide, the podcast for all disciplines, paths, players, and game masters, and the questers that are Dan and Josh. I am Dan. I am Josh. And on today's I podcast, think. yeah, we, we kind of think we are. We're 88 episodes in, or 87, sorry, got ahead of myself, 87 episodes in. So we 86, the last one, we're going to go back to the future in the next one. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you don't get that reference, we just can't be friends. On today's podcast, we'll do all things uh, Arrowentical again after we get to some quizzical uh, emails and one email of praise, actually, of the two. Uh, but if you have any questions for us, feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com and on to the rest of the show. So preamble all done. Hi, I just wanted to say that I love the podcast. I haven't played since first edition, though I am now excited to run a one-shot for my game group. I am excited about trying the new fourth edition. Regards, George. Welcome, George. Welcome back, Always man. appreciate, yeah, always appreciate wayward sheep returning to the fold. Yeah. Longtime babes, yeah. fans coming back. Bring it. Discovering, go, go rediscovering, the spread the spreading the word. Yeah, it's all, it's all great. <laughs> And I hope you uh, appreciate the show. I know we've changes. got people. And the, and the changes for fourth edition. I hope you, you yeah. like those. Um, yeah, we've still got people that are getting caught up. I posted the most recent episode that went live as we were recording this was last week's episode 86. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, shared it as I usually do. And somebody commented that they were, you know, like getting caught up that they were in the 40s of their listen through. I think they were in like 48 or something like that. Ooh. But we appreciate people sticking with us. Absolutely. It's all great. And getting caught up and, and asking new questions. We'll take it. So a uh, longer email comes from Jonathan. Again, George, I hope you like fourth edition. We do. And uh, as one of my players put it recently, fourth edition fixes everything he thought was broken in the first three. So going to leave that there. Yeah, but it's still got some of its own <laughs> broken stuff. What doesn't? What doesn't? Things are broken in some places. Anyway, hi, Josh. Hi, Dan. Josh got top billing. I just listened to your last episode, and I have to say, I'm very curious about your view on ogres. We'll get there. Maybe not this one. We'll, we'll know. We'll, we've, got, we've got time this week. We'll cover that, but continue. <laughs> Go for it. My friends and I have just begun a campaign of 1879, but my friends are already planning their character for my upcoming campaign of Earth Dawn. These are Fossa acolytes. We're all good. One of them asked me to play an ogre, to which I already said yes. I'm not sure what I got myself into, but we'll see. On another matter, I'm really looking forward to listening to your episode on Horror Stalkers. Good news for you. That went up live today, as we record this right now, because uh, I assume you will. I hope you'll talk about how they interact with the light bearers, but mostly with the Grim Legion. In former editions, the Horror Stalker was just a discipline, and the Grim Legion was a faction. So one could be into a- another or not. But now, Horror Stalker is a path and a faction, and their philosophy and methods seem to blur with those of the Grim Legion. On a lighter matter, here's an easy question on paths. Human journeymen can transform into other races, so could they follow paths that are restricted to them, like Fire Eater and Tail Dancer? I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm curious to hear you elaborate on it. Thanks for your time, and thanks for all the podcasts. Jonathan. A lot to unpack there. Yeah, we'll take those in reverse <laughs> order. Reverse order. Reverse order, because the journeyman question is the easiest one to address. Yes. As written and intended, no, by being a journeyman path, by following the journeyman path as a human, that would not allow you to join paths that are otherwise racially restricted, even though 
theoretically, yeah, the journeyman abilities might allow you to pick up something like Gahad that is restrictive for another path. Yeah, you look like them, but you you can't be them all the time. Yeah, that is not that is not what is intended or allowed rules as written, and so that's not something that we're ever going to support in official products. Obviously, if you want to do something funky at your own table, you can do that, but that kind of runs counter to the spirit of the thing. Mm-hmm. And largely because of the secret brotherhood nature of paths, yeah, the human would probably have a really hard time convincing the people who would actually make the decision to let them join the path to actually join the path. But player characters are frequently exceptions. So if you can come up with something cool in your game and you want to allow it, okay. I'm just remembering that that talent takes an awful lot of strain. <laughs> just trying to figure out how much strain you have to go through to pull yeah. off the disguise for that long. I mean, there's there's a lot of like, I haven't looked at the rules requirements or what would actually need to be done in order to actually pull that off without some kind of major dose of hand wavium. Well, lucky for you, right. uh, Journeyman is coming up soon, so. Yes. <laughs> Next, ogres. Okay. So. Yeah. Ogres are, generally speaking, not considered a name-giver race. One of the things Correct. that we need to keep in mind yeah. is, mm-hmm. generally speaking, that the definition of name-giver races is provided by people who consider themselves name givers. Yes. And so whether ogres are name givers in that sense, you can start really getting into some deep weed shrubbery (laughs) area with that. I mean, ogres are clearly sapient enough. Like Mm -hmm. they can communicate. They have, Something that passes for culture, they are able to, from examples that appear in the books, work among other name givers. But there are no rules provided for playing them. Yeah. As a name giver. So, no. Right. Well, as as a as a player, as a player character. Yeah, correct. Sorry. I'm not sure offhand what. I would do to build them as a playable as a PC race. I don't know offhand because of their immense strength and magical abilities that even put an obsidian to shame in some oh, regards. Yeah. yeah. You would want to be really careful probably by sort of nerfing their mental traits into the ground, which feels kind of bad. Well, they kind of already are. I mean, you're talking because that reinforces the yeah, it kind of reinforces the stereotype of them as dumb brutes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Earth Dawn is not really a game system that is particularly well suited as a default mode of play for allowing The further you get into extremes of things, the tougher it is to provide guidance on what that would be. There's little evidence that an ogre 
would be able to follow a discipline, although I think... I don't remember now whether it was an ogre or a troll, perhaps a cave troll, that was in one of the Thrall adventures where he was an old-school, like, first-edition-style shaman. So I think ogres sort of culturally, while it might be possible for exceptions among them to follow a discipline. There are also clearly examples of magically connected ogres. I mean, you've got ogre twins, Mm -hmm. you know, an iconic Earth Dawn monster. I kind of look at ogres as the idea of, yes, the scholars of the kingdom of Thrall, which is largely, and perhaps to a certain extent, Thera, which are largely the predominant social and political powers And when you have power, that allows you to other others and Mm -hmm. basically define ogres as not being people, which is really what being a name giver is. There's some really potentially interesting stuff to explore there. It's not Mm -hmm. something that right now we are looking at exploring in any kind of official thing. We've got Barge, I think is his name, the NPC in Empty Thrones. Yeah. Is an ogre. Yeah, I just the idea of ogres being othered as not name givers. And then you but then you also start getting into questions of, well, what about other potentially sapient beings that exist in Earth Dawn like Naga or Manticores, even though a lot of the Manticores have sort of been fallen on hard times and such mm-hmm. tormented by the horrors and whatnot. Yeah. You get a very different setting, you get a very different tone, you get a very different style if you think of the things that happened to manticores or ogres or any of the other sort of sapient beings out there that were not allowed to partake in the potential safety of the cares and the Theron rites of protection and passage because they were not considered people. Fair enough. Yeah, so ogres. You, I mean, you probably can play one. I just don't know if you're going to be able to have him walk down a discipline or a path. Even yeah, I mean, because... I, I, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there's sort of like again, exceptions. Obviously, player characters are are exceptional by their very nature and can mm-hmm. do things that would not generally otherwise be allowed, broadly yeah. speaking. But you're looking at a person who is very, very strong traditionally not particularly learned uh, i don't want to say anything necessarily like intelligence isn't really a stat in earth dawn you've got perception and and willpower yeah. and for ogres the yeah. the base stats their those sort of mental stats tend to be on the lower end as presented in the gm guide yeah step four step six right you know you're probably looking at them having the equivalent like step three or the 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 karma rating of three, like obsidian and trolls would be. You'd want to mm-hmm. be careful about their the ability that they have as the creature to imbue their clubs with mystic force in order to to deal extra damage. If they're going to be following a discipline, which you are probably gonna want to have happen in order for them to keep up with the other members of the group as they advance, yeah. You'll either want to kind of custom make something 
or perhaps limit them to, again, a lot of this depends on the background of the character, limit them to disciplines that would be more traditional for someone of a less less throlic throlic definition of civilized Mm -hmm. people shaman as a spellcaster discipline yeah possibly elementalist or nethermancer if you've got a really exceptional one in terms of their learningness Mm -hmm. beastmaster would probably be potentially common warrior possibly maybe a scout maybe Maybe, yeah, maybe a scout. You know, there there are a couple of possibilities that I could see making sense with the traditional depiction of ogres within the fiction of the setting as presented thus far. Fair. Just don't name him Shrek. Or do. Or do. Knock yourself out. Okay, uh, last one, since we're doing this in kind of reverse order. Uh, Grim Legion Horror Stalkers. Yeah, I, this this email actually came in... Right as we posted after, well, yeah, well, episode. yeah, like as we had, and read the email when it came in, and I was like, oh yeah, the Grim Legion well, would have we'll been something the... kind of interesting to yeah. connect or relate to the horror stalkers as they got set up, and it didn't, which I guess in one regard is kind of a, a missed opportunity. It's okay. We'll talk about the Grim Legion when we get to the secret society. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll stuff. maybe talk about them in, in a bit more depth. Yeah. But I think more basically, I think it might make sense in one regard for perhaps the Grim Legion to be a faction within the Horror Stalkers, mm. um, broadly, because again, the the Horror Stalkers as a path are kind of united, but not as formal as uh, some that we will be talking about. Or could just be a different organization and that the horror stalkers maybe don't regard them particularly well because as evidenced in uh, Infected, uh, minor spoilers for the adventure, first edition adventure Infected (laughs) incoming. Yeah. Um, there are examples of the Grim Legion using the hunting horrors excuse as a way to line their own pockets or amass power in some regards. Yeah. And it's certainly possible that you could have individual horror stalkers that might work with detachments of the Grim Legion. I don't recall right now off the top of my head whether the Grim Legion has any kind of larger formal structure or if it's largely a case of any group that kind of is hunting horrors can call themselves the Grim Legion and go from there. They're like, again, looking at the group from Infected, the Grim Legion in that adventure, there doesn't seem to be anything in place as far as worry that there are higher powers there are there are higher ranks or people above them that might come down on them for doing what they are doing fair enough that's that's an interesting idea to look at how the horror stalkers and the grim legion would interact the light bearers 
talked about the light bears in other episodes. I'm just not sure <laughs> yeah. what in first edition stuff they're they they kind of faded away and didn't end up doing make, make a whole lot subsequent yeah well they like there were a couple of characters that were indicated as being light bearers but they were not as an organization they were not something that became very integrated into the ongoing story of bar save mm-hmm. i think they were kind of developed as this is a a secret organization that player character groups might eventually be invited to join a la the harpers from forgotten realms for example yeah but I'm not really sure, especially as other material was developed and you had things like the Purifiers and various other secret societies, the Lightbearers, I don't think, even show up in the Secret Society's book. Like, they don't get a write-up in there when it seems like that would have been a, a great place for that for them to have perhaps explored or been looked at in a bit more depth. Agreed. Yeah, would have been a good spot for him. So that ends our email segment for the day, the first 20 minutes of the episode. So if you, like I said, if you have any questions for us at all, we'll take new listeners, old listeners, current listeners, partial listeners, whatever. Uh, feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. And now we get to talk about one of the lesser known dragons, but shouldn't be lesser known, Earthroot. Because this is a great dragon Former native of Cathay, but moved into Thrall about 300 years after the death of Allwings, and is one of the bigger movers and shakers. And if you've not run two of the pre-gen adventures from first edition, then you're not going to be in, in his realm all that often. Because there were two that were, where did I have written down? They were both yeah. in the Thrall Adventures book. Yeah, uh, The Way Out which was renamed to West Thrall's Passage, same adventure, different name, and then Pale River. So both of those adventures take place under Thrall in uh, the catacombs. So if you... In the domain, in the domain of the of, Pale Ones. Yes. So, and which are his minions, per se? So. <laughs> yes. So Much like other dragons... Earthroot is very secretive and behind the scenes, and there are a few things going on with Earthroot and information that is kind of dropped in the Outcast's report about him that feel like potentially a big deal. But unlike Mountain Shadow, unlike Icewing, unlike Vast and Jass... Yeah. All of whom are sort of public and active to certain extents. And unlike a ban, a, a ban or Usun or Charcoal Grin, mm-hmm. who might not be as friendly with regular folks, but are still known as far as dragons, Earthroot is kind of an unknown quantity. He yeah. layers his domain is, as you said, down below the Thrall Mountains, and he doesn't really come out of that much. No, uh, even even Outcast says he's only been seen in dragon form outside his lair maybe three times. And you know, as Outcast says, so take that with a pound of salt. But no, you're right. 
And until the arrival of Divilganon in Carafad with Krathis Gron, Earthroot is in fact the only Cathay dragon to be known in Barsave. Yeah. At least the one, any, any that, is, that are named. It's possible, I, I don't, I, as usual, did not reread his chapter from the book before recording tonight. So it's possible that he might have an adult dragon or two. But I also suspect that he might not be asked to clutch many eggs as a result of where he is and his very secretive involvement in day-to-day affairs. Correct. Your memory is better than my research. So according to the the essay from Outcast, Earthroot only has about three Drake servants, one female, two male, and didn't mention anything about an adult dragon or clutching any eggs. But he's also had a hard time finding a lot of information out about Earthroot because Earthroot is, as you said, very secretive and doesn't go outside much. Likes being underground, likes feasting. I mean, his the Pale Ones bring him boatloads upon boatloads of underground goodies to eat. And so uh, Outcast even says that Earthroot has gotten, not, not lazy, is not the word I was looking for, Indolent. Horsely. Indulgent? Yeah, uh, that too. <laughs> that's not, <laughs> really. well, that's not the word that I was thinking of. Indolent. No, no. I-N-D-O-L-E-N-T. O-L-E-N-T. Yes. Is a, it's a fancy become... word for lazy. Yes. Uh, sloth-like, indulgent, portly, fat, you know, just to, uh, to largesse is what I was thinking about. Anyway, layers under, under Thrall, but actively aids the Dwarf Kingdom uh, along with Icewing, so they they Icewing and uh, Earthroot occasionally have a little tête-à-tête. They get along until they disagree, and then they avoid that, and then they get along again. So one of those things. So there is a, a small little partnership with Icewing, but he's a little bit less hands-on than Icewing. Yeah, I can see the wheels turning in Josh's head. Well, not related to that. It's more <laughs> that I was kind of scanning through the the chapter here. I like the characterization that we get of the outcast and the yeah. Denerastus sort of by extension as a result of this. I was kind of reading the section. Yes. Talking about the Pale Ones bringing him, you know, so much food and how he basically disses dwarf cuisine as a result of it, uh, where he you know, says that what the dwarfs called delicacies would scarcely be fit for the lowliest servant in your household. Yes. You know, why, why Earthroot would lower himself to eat such things? There's that <laughs> superiority that carries over from the outcast and into his children. Oh, yeah. That is just fascinating. Mm-hmm. It talks a lot about the pale ones. And much like Mountain Shadow has his network of name givers that are his eyes and ears and, and do his work for him, the Pale Ones are the equivalent of that for Earthroot, but the Pale Ones very rarely leave their underground homes, Yeah, um, which in one sense could potentially limit the amount of, of information that Earthroot would presumably have access to. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, the outcast is 
very clear to point out that Earthroot is still a great dragon with all of that entails and is incredibly intelligent and magically skilled and do not underestimate him at all. Yeah. Living underground as he does amongst amongst the earth and the the rivers is mm-hmm. exceptionally skilled in elemental magic. Yes. Especially earth magic and probably more, but Outcast can't figure out what he does know because he's having a hard time getting his drakes to penetrate Earthroot's defenses because Earthroot's eyes and ears are his, as I said, his three drake servants, the female named Niu and the male named Golren and the other male named Loyang. And they travel far and abroad. And so they bring back all the information that he wants to know. So he's he's still catching up on all the gossip and all the all the movings and shakings because he likes to be involved in Thrall, Thrall's upkeep, Thrall's uh, politics, and I mean this is a this is a gr- great dragon who it's said he can see the future and plans out these chess-like moves very 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 far in advance, which is why he rescued the to scrying villages that couldn't make it into the cares and they eventually became the pale ones. And now the pale ones worship him, revere him, protect him and bring him what he wants. So he's got his own little small little enclave of to underground that will do anything he wants. And so that was a nice little chess move he made centuries ago and it's paying off for him in spades. Yeah. So another interesting tidbit with regards to the Earthroot essay in the old yeah. dragons book is that unlike the other dragons that we have discussed thus far, there are no real sidebars or commentary by mountain From shadow that. in any yeah. of this. So he's, he's, there's no point where the outcast says something and mountain shadow responds to it sort of in the text. He's got his little yeah. introduction, you know, and is basically saying, he even the fact that he even knows this much about Earthroot or Root Protector, as the dragons call him, yeah, is disturbing. And just keep in mind what that means with regards to his intelligence about our operations and various other things. And also, where the outcast talks about the relationship between Icewing and Earthroot and yeah. how. Icewing, as the elder and native to Barsave, whereas Earthroot mm-hmm. comes from Cathay, that the friction that comes up between them when it does is that Icewing knows better, you know, what is better for the Dwarf Kingdom yeah, in its purpose as a tool of the dragon's grander plans for whatever. And it's because Icewing tries to tell... Earthroot how to how to help the dwarves and when and, and, and to specific detail and Earthroot's kind of like yeah I got this back off right <laughs> and usually how it's Mountain Shadow that needs to step in to kind of settle things and like smooth the the relations between them because yeah. a conflict between Icewing and Earthroot would be disastrous for Thrall? Yeah. (laughs) This feels like one of those things that I don't know if there were any, like, actual plans for it. I think a lot of what 
the dragon's source book was laying out in addition to revealing the secret behind the Denerastus and what was going on with them, because it was the penultimate book before the war, was laying a lot of groundwork for here are the potential fracture points mm-hmm. for future storylines and plots to potentially take advantage of, whether actual developed books by OG Fassa would have explored any of them remains to be seen. But this is another example of world building in advance Mm -hmm. of laying the groundwork of providing uh, hooks either for them to develop if they found that something was interesting to work further or simply for game masters to get inspired by and say, oh, hey, a conflict between Icewing and Earthroot that Mountain Shadow is for some reason unable to smooth off, smooth over or perhaps yeah. is not able to smooth over quickly enough could cause some kind of problems in the Dwarf Kingdom. And, you know, I'm thinking of a situation, hey, let's talk about fourth edition and what's going on with the Dwarf Kingdom right now in that we have this sort of previously unheard of king who's largely in some regards a puppet of the conservative old guard and has withdrawn itself from greater Barsavian affairs uh, mm-hmm. to tend to themselves internally. And I don't imagine that Icewing is particularly thrilled with the fact that one of his major avenues of influence in bar save is not doing as much as they could and that perhaps he and earthroot could come into a conflict of some sort over the best way to prod the kingdom to get back to doing what they do doing what they want them to do especially to act as a counter to the expansionist notions of iopos and the denerastus clan if they come into a conflict of some sort, that could influence events in the kingdom itself as each dragon has their own little agents and and factions within the kingdom. Because while the kingdom is a pawn, is a tool of the dragons, mm-hmm. it is made up of a whole bunch of individuals and it is tough to control that sort of thing. Exactly. You know, Mountain Shadow perhaps being distracted by something else or perhaps not being able to act fast enough in order to calm something around could allow some nasty stuff to happen to various factions or powers or whatever Yeah, in the Dwarf Kingdom, especially if the Denerastus could somehow get involved to fan the flames a little bit. So, uh, a couple things real quick. Earthroot is a generation younger than Mountain Shadow or Ice or Icewing, but as I said, is a Cathay dragon. Had a fight with another dragon over territory in Cathay, left, and Earthroot, sorry, Outcast says that probably Earthroot is uh, licking his wounds and still suffering from the indignation of losing the, the battle. Um, but one of those things. So just remember, he's hundreds of years younger. Hey, I know. hey Outcast, projecting much? 
I love the psychology of the dragon source book. It was, it was well done that way. But so we could find, I could find a description of Earthroot in the text. And since, uh, Charcoal Grin didn't have one because no one ever gets to see Charcoal Grin much anymore. Uh, I thought this one was kind of cool because this is an exceptionally large dragon whose scales glisten whether wet or dry. So they're kind of pearlescent, um, whose underbelly is dark green, but the dorsal scales uh, all glimmer in pearlescent colors of silver, pale green, rose, whatever you, what have you, but with jet black eyes. Because, yeah, you live underground all that time. Um your pupils are going to dilate like crazy. Just my thought. But I figured if you had a picture of a, a black and white drawn dragon, color that in and just see what that would look like. I think that'd be kind of cool. Just me. But I like, to, again, I like to know what each one of these things look like. So uh, I can help people write the novel in their head. Another interesting <laughs> bit. Yes. As I'm reading this, like I'm finding out much more interesting tidbits and details in that same yeah. paragraph where he is describing Earthroot. Yeah. yeah. Or it's actually the next paragraph where he's talking about how Earthroot spends as much time as he can submerged in water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Some foolish younger name givers think that because he lives so much underwater, Earthroot must be a leviathan rather than a true dragon. Yes. Now, the question uh-huh. there is, yeah. is... The outcast merely reporting what those foolish younger races are saying. Mm-hmm. That the foolish younger races are saying that he yes. that the Leviathans are not true dragons, because that's the implication of that phrasing. Uh-huh. When we know from earlier in the book, in fact, that Leviathans are true dragons. Yes. Is the outcast merely reporting what yeah. those foolish younger races are saying in their mm-hmm. mistaken belief that Leviathans are not dragons? Or... Which is, I think, what is more likely. But is it possible that the outcast is saying himself that he does not consider Leviathan's true dragons? Yeah. Given his age and his ego and his belief in the superiority of dragons overall, I have a hard time actually believing that he would not consider Leviathan's true true dragons. dragons. Although it is kind of established that the Leviathans that are nearby do not muck about with Barsave at all. And so he may not have anything to do with them and therefore not have any real consideration of them. Yeah, they're dragons, but they're not involved. They're, they, they don't interfere with my plans at all, so whatever. Yeah. But that's a very interesting phrasing. It is a very interesting phrasing. I like that one. Let's get back to uh, Earthroot's lair and his domain, because those are two different things. <clears throat> so his lair is underground, under the Thrall Mountains and under the Dwarf Kingdom. As I said, if you play uh, The Way Out or West Lost Passage, Same Adventure, or Pale River, you may come across it in there. So relatively close by. But his domain is wherever the underground rivers go, wherever the underground lakes are, and... He can get to them probably faster than most because even though he is a very large dragon, not every cavern or pathway there is large. So he uses earth magic to swim through the soil and earth like he would if he were a fish in water. So he can just phase through it. 
or in yeah. Earthgrill. Yeah, there you go. So he may not actually leave new tunnels behind. He actually just might, you know, phase through the earth and soil and be done. So he can get there faster than most. So one of the powers that should be made knowledgeable to anybody who wants to throw Earthroot into their campaign, uh, that's one of those things. But um, he uses the Pale Ones more more than just as um, people who bring him food or, you know, to revere him and so forth and so on. He actually uses the Pale Ones as messengers between him and Icewing. Another interesting thing with regards to the Pale Ones. Yes. The Outcast talks about the origin of the Pale Ones as a subculture of mm-hmm. Jaskrang and claims that they came about as a result of regular Tuscrang that were attempting to find shelter in Thrall prior to the Scourge and knew about the underground waterways and so forth that led into the the tunnels and so forth below the kingdom. Yeah. And were using those to try and get into the kingdom but found their way sealed and Earthroot sheltered them and intentionally as the the outcast says, did whatever he could to speed their descent into barbarism, <laughs> which is yet another interesting psychological insight into the outcast mm-hmm. and, and his relationship with his servants, his offspring yeah. in that regard. Mm-hmm. And that presenting, oh, they consider themselves, you know, in much the same way that he views the way that the dragons have prohibited breeding with other name giver races. Yeah. As short sighted. Oh, yes, they they all talk about how noble and great and wonderful they are. And yet they hold, mm-hmm. you know, directing this towards his children, but expanding that to be they hold the younger races in yeah. contempt and that when it suits them, they manipulate them into being less than they could be that mm-hmm. Earthroot manipulated these to scrang into being more primitive and barbaric. Whereas yeah. I, as a, as the true epitome of my kind am sharing Outcast. with you the knowledge mm-hmm. and the noble lineage that is us inducting that's not the word using propaganda inducing is the right word but you but using propaganda in his own way Mm -hmm. to instill this sense of superiority in the same way that he feels superior to the other dragons yeah he is instilling in in his children a sense of superiority over other name givers Mm-hmm. over other people, whether that's Thrall or whatever. Oh, yeah. You have a right to rule because you are better than them. And it's all, it's very fashy. It is very fashy. It's all ego. It's all ego and self-serving and... Yeah, it's, it's egotistical. It's completely egotistical. It's the self-justification of the conqueror and the colonizer. Mm-hmm. That we are bringing enlightenment to these poor, benighted people. Yes. Bringing civilization to the darkness. Makes for a 
Makes for a great martyr. <laughs> if yeah. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> there's a there's a path we're not gonna go down today. Well, martyrdom martyrdom does not seem to be something that is in the cards for the outcast or the denerastus, because if they're dead, then they can't receive the adulation <laughs> that is their due after they achieve their ends. Exactly. No, no, no. The denerastus individual denerastus are all for perhaps making other denerastus martyrs. Yes. I mean, that's that's a big part of the story behind the Denerastus takeover of Iopos during the Scourge, is that yeah. they turned one of the earlier members of their family into a martyr, mm -hmm. when it is just as possible that he was killed, like assassinated <laughs> by his own family members. That's not a, that's not something Outcast would do. No! I think the outcast has a very draconic view of his children mm -hmm. in the same way that the dragons kind of are very um, survival of the most fit. If a young dragon is not able to make it through adolescence mm -hmm. and become an adult, then they did not deserve to be. They were not fit to be a dragon yes. and to join the ranks of our noble kind. Yes. And I think that the outcast probably has a very similar outlook towards what goes on with the Denerastus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think he is in some ways blind to his own draconic faults in that he is not overly necessarily overly fond of any individual Denerastus. Although if there are those like Ool, for example, yeah, who have done quite a bit to impress him and the cutthroat nature of that family's internal politics. But if somebody is ca canny and cunning enough to do stuff to take mm -hmm. that position, I think the outcast is all for that. I think that kind of cutthroat skullduggery that goes on in that family is the perfect breeding ground for what he wants out of his toys. Because I think yeah. ultimately, <laughs> however much he talks to them about how awesome they are, they are ultimately just toys to him. They are his pawns in the game mm -hmm. that he is playing against the other great dragons. Yes. He wants them to be awesome because that means his toys are better than their toys. And he wants <laughs> his toys to beat their toys. But even though, ultimately... Even he has no problem discarding his toys when the game is done. He's got the same view of the younger races that other dragons do, which is they don't live very long. Mm -hmm. And so don't get overly attached to them. I mean, it's like... yeah. Humans' views of of gerbils and hamsters and goldfish, goldfish. and stuff. Yeah, I was gonna say goldfish. It lives for two days. Whatever. Get the next. Get another one. They're cool and they're fascinating and they're interesting and like you you can kind of appreciate how awesome they are despite their limitations. And yet, you don't gonna get overly attached because you're gonna go through them like goldfish. <laughs> exactly. Both the swimming and the cracker variety. <laughs> Precisely. So we should talk a little bit about when Earthroot does venture out, it's not in dragon form, and he does kind of stay around the kingdom of Thrall, and he usually takes the form of a dwarf. Again, all per what the outcast says. Uh, but he, the, this dwarf that Earthroot uh, becomes, is all about 
advising anybody who's building anything in Thrall and the city planners and how to build it. And for whatever reason, all these people just find him super convincing and that this was the right thing to do, even if it's demolish it, rebuild it and start over again and fortify it deeper, wider, stronger, taller, doesn't matter because Earthroot at the end of the day, at the end of all these centuries has a plan and that is to fortify Thrall physically from any onslaught, but also by directing all of this building, he's helping to correct and direct the flow of earth magic and strengthen Thrall's true pattern. And since that's right above his lair, it's like making sure your, uh, your uh, neighbor's above you in the, the, you know, if you're in an apartment building, the neighbors above you are living better than you are just because you don't want the fire to start up there. Earthroot is basically doing feng shui yes. with the dwarf <laughs> kingdom. He is shaping the tunnels and the cities and the construction and all of that to shape and manipulate the astral energies that mm -hmm. flow through the kingdom to reinforce the kingdom's pattern in a similar kind of way that the true pattern, say, of the blood wood mm -hmm. reflects or is shaped by the physical structure of the wood. The true pattern of the kingdom of Thrall would thereby be shaped by the physical structure of, of the kingdom. Yes. Now, I do have to say that from one hand, that's a really cool magical idea. Mm -hmm. It's really, really interesting that, you know, with the dragon's knowledge of pattern magic, that it makes sense that a dragon, a great dragon with that level of knowledge would perhaps be able to do that and to understand yeah. how the physical shaping of a space would potentially reflect in its true pattern. Mm hmm. I do have to say that it feels kind of cliche for the one quote-unquote Asian dragon in the setting to be doing that. It does not seem to be something that is talked about with regards to the way that other great dragons do things. Yeah. At least as I recall it, it may be when we get into dragons who are much more intimately connected with their domains we're talking about usun and aban mm -hmm. um that we may see similar kind of thing but i i don't recall it being expressed in quite the same way again yeah. doesn't come right out and say oh yeah he's doing feng shui but he's doing feng close shui. enough <laughs> close enough which you know again <clears throat> really cool idea feels kind of i don't know i feel mildly discomfited with that notion like there's a very orientalist exoticism uh, not blatant not awful not broken but just you know speaking for myself as a trying to be better white dude who grew up in the 90s and remembers the asian fascination japanese culture oh totally kind of stuff from the 90s when a lot of this was being written mm -hmm. feels again not awful he is the only one who has this awareness it's more like this seems a little bit too on the nose for me fair that is reflected by a subsequent 
two decades of greater awareness and understanding of the rich diversity and philosophical practices of the the numerous Asian cultures, that it's not all just uh, the pop culture, Western borrowings of Asian cultural practices. That's okay. I would have taken a little bit longer to get to the point that he was a Cathay native and doing feng shui and all that stuff. So it's okay. I see your viewpoint on it. Yeah. I understand it. And as you said, not evil, not mocking, not, uh, not detracting in any way. I don't want to cancel anybody over this. I don't think this is the sort of thing that is, I compare this sort of thing to some of the stuff that was in the Cathay books, which I am not as familiar with, but the Cathay books are, are a different thing different altogether. Beast. Yeah. This feels like a cool notion that, I don't know, I probably wouldn't have picked up on it in 1999. Or at least would not have felt about it the way that I do now. Fair. That's totally, totally fair. But I have thoughts, so I'm sharing them. It's okay. So the question is, yeah, it's your show. So the question is, because uh, Outcast says that Earthroot probably knows more elemental and earth magic than just about anybody. So is that more than Alamaze, who, you know, did the elemental wood magic? Or is it just that Earthroot knows more earth magic than Alamaze knows in wood magic? I would say it's probably the latter, that it's more that Earthroot is more skilled and knowledgeable and practiced with earth magic. I think when you get to the kind of level that you're talking about with great dragons, it's <laughs> it's 99 to hundred, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I still think either of them with whatever type of magic they wish to throw your way are going to ruin your day. Absolutely. So last little thing we should bring up about Earthroot, uh, and Josh can talk about this a little bit more, uh, cause I have something I want to read real quick is that, um, he's called, Earth pro- or, or root protector because of the legend of the white tree. Do you remember this one? Yes. Okay. I do remember the white tree. This feels like one of those things that again was sort of seeded as a potential future thing, but not really totally. explored a whole lot. Mm-hmm. The white tree is a thing down below and it's got some kind of, major magical significance but what that is and why it is as important as it is is never really explained this feels like one of those situations where you intentionally avoid the the maiden butler dialogue because Mm -hmm. either the outcast decides that the people that he is speaking to ostensibly the denarastus followers don't really need to know yeah more than what he's saying or they already know, and so he doesn't, like, as you know, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, he doesn't over-explain because he doesn't have to. He does give us a little bit of information that what what he knows to be true, which is mm-hmm. that the white tree sprang from the heart of all wings when she was slain. Yep. We Well, there was the question that we had several, several weeks ago where somebody was talking about... Yeah, the All Dragons episode. The Dragons episode, we're talking about the eyes of all wings and other parts... This is the last part. The white tree grew from All Wings' heart. Heart, yeah. Somehow it ended up below the Thrall Mountains, and it is from that 
Earthroot took the heart and embedded it in a certain underground lake bed where veins of true earth and orichalcum met beneath the waters laden with true water. Uh, the tree carries within it all the power of the things that made it, and Earthroot guards it to this day. This is why he's called Root Protector. But it, uh, the tree itself glows the brilliant white of a thousand light courses, and its leaves gleam like rubies, sapphires, and pearls. I love all of this description text. It's fantastic. Uh, but vast quantities of true water are necessary for its survival. So every scrap of that element received by Earthroot as tribute from the Pale Ones, because they fish it for him, goes to water this tree and keep it going. Because Dragon Lore says, uh, if the white tree ever dies, all of Dragonkind will fade from the world. So, yeah, <laughs> that is a big part of the reason why we don't know much about the tree is because the outcast honestly doesn't know much about the tree. Exactly. He knows it exists. He knows it's super powerful. <laughs> but beyond that, he's not sure. Yeah, because it's it's new. It's a new thing, relatively mm -hmm. speaking. Yes. And so he doesn't know much about it and has one of his drakes searching for it and searching for information about it. Yeah. This is a super duper powerful artifact and could be super, super handy for us to do what we want to do. If we mm -hmm. can somehow gain access to it or gain control of it or something along those lines. Yeah. But how much does he want to disrupt the, the food source for the tree? Because it's earth root and his minions gathering all the true water to water the tree to make sure it stays alive. How much do you want to disrupt that outcast? Really? Well, <laughs> the outcast does say because of the legend yeah. of the tale of what might happen, mm -hmm. we don't want to mess with it until we know. Yes. The outcast is very patient. Oh, the outcast yes. is a very long view and is mm -hmm. more than willing to wait to find out what to do or what he can do beyond that. Yeah. You know, he's not saying go like, yeah, it's possible that by destroying this, we could win our game, mm -hmm. but it yeah. could be at a cost that is greater than we are willing to pay because yeah. it might mean that we that we're gone, too, and then we can't gloat over how we won. I just like how they took this gluttonous, that was what I was looking for earlier, gluttonous great dragon, ancient upstart who lost a fight, moved somewhere else, supposedly is licking his wounds, but not really licking his wounds because he got this whole band of followers, but he's also the person, sorry, he's also the dragon taking care of this really old ancient Hey, um, dragons tree. are persons too. Yes, dragons are persons too. So you have this, again, these really complex characters interwoven into this legend of a dragon that you may or may not see. If you do up above ground, you're probably going to see him as a dwarf and not know it's a dragon uh, who doesn't come out very often unless he has to go to the council. But other than that, if you're going down in his realm, maybe he'll talk to you. Maybe he'll eat you. Who knows? I just love the fact that this it's not just a one-dimensional dragon underground. We've talked about with other dragons how to involve them in campaigns. Yeah. And I don't really have a lot to go on. I don't really have a lot to advise when it comes to Earthroot and involvement in campaigns because Earthroot is largely going to be a presence that you deal with only if you are venturing down into the Pale One's caverns. Yeah. His presence and influence is much more 
secretive and behind the scenes than even Mountain Shadow, who is notoriously canny and secretive about Mm -hmm. what he is up to and going and has going on. But Mountain Shadow is also has got his claws everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't get that impression with Earthroot. I think Earthroot's reach perhaps extends further than we sort of get the impression of even here with this essay. Yeah. But he is still a very much more isolated, follows much more in in the vein of Charcoal Grin, or as we will kind of find later, Aban and Usun, who have their own areas and you tend to only get involved with them when your adventures and expeditions touch on those areas. Yeah. So his, his three drakes, like I said, are his eyes and ears, and they kind of do, you know, certain parts of the Coil River. So Earthroot is really um, only, I can't say interested, but really only extending his reach and his knowledge through the riverways above ground and below ground. So not a lot of uh, over land, but I think the coolest... The coolest flavor text I came across in the entire essay is Earthroot's actual lair. We covered the domain, and we covered the uh, the white tree, but the white tree is in a different underground lake than Earthroot's actual domain. And beneath the largest of these um, lakes, surrounded by a fantastical garden of tree-sized mushrooms, glowing fungi, and other plants too strange to name, is Earthroot's favorite resting place. Uh, the pale ones call it Shus Halima, or Glittering Home, because of the green-white glow of the fungus that covers the enclosing rock, and the cavern that holds this inland sea would take one uh, human, dwarf, whatever, many weeks to circumnavigate, all under the watchful eye of the pale ones whose dwellings are carved into its walls. So, just imagine a cavern that big, with pale ones nestled there, to live, guard, whatever the case may be, that's his favorite place to be. So, tree-sized mushrooms and glowing fungi to make everything illuminate. So I love Earth Dawn for the flavor text and the setting descriptions because I can't say they're unique, but man, they are good. Yeah. So uh, and if you're going to play, if you're going to work Earthroot in, the two easiest ways to do it, I think, would be to run the first edition uh, Thrall Adventure The Way Out, also known as West, West Thrall's Passage, or the third edition Shard Pale River, those are the only two I can think of because that way you'll go down there on purpose. You'll interact with the pale ones on purpose and you may come across talking or being eaten by Earthroot at that point. Other than that, yeah, it's kind of hard to work Earthroot into anything <laughs> above ground or outside of yeah, anywhere else. At, at least directly. Again, I think there's the possibility for Earthroot to be involved in some kind of more in-depth sort of political campaign in Thrall if you wanted to work the dragons in somehow if you wanted to have Icewing and Earthroot and potentially a faction supported or backed by the Denerastus and, and the Outcast. Yeah. Manipulating each other in a very urban skullduggery intrigue sort of game. That is certainly something that would be there. Mm-hmm. But largely in a situation where until you're PCs likely got into higher circles, probably would not directly get involved with the dragons themselves, but perhaps only be aware of them as the shadowy masters behind whatever 
factions or, or cults that they are dealing with. So any final thoughts on Earthroot now that you've kind of skimmed the essay again and learned, no, learned I, a few more things? <laughs> the stuff that I had to say, I said when I came across things and, and came up with it <laughs> at the moment, which does mean I think that this that there's a, a little bit more rambling and sidetracking into other topics not quite directly related to Earthroot because there's That's not fine. as much to work with with him. That's okay. I think it, it's more to know there's a passive storyline going on than I need to in, in actively engage this this great dragon, but it helps to flush out the entire realm if you happen to go spelunking in Thrall. Yes. Just my two cents. Uh, until next time, folks, um, if you have any questions for us, feel free to email us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, it is time for you to go guard the white tree of your own legend. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>